Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give an industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. Uh, first, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next up, we have Robert, uh, crypto connoisseur and captain of Compound. Uh, third, we've got Tarun, the gigabrain and grand poobah gauntlet. And then we have myself, I'm Haseeb, head hype man at Dragonfly. And today we have joining us a special guest from her uh, from her Airbnb uh, in a nondescript location. Uh, we've got Laura Shin. So um, the, the four of us, not including Laura, are early stage investors in crypto. But I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice or legal advice or even life advice. So Laura, uh, first of all, congratulations on your book. I think last time we were able to say it here, but you weren't able to join us at that time. Congratulations. I know it's been a huge effort in the undertaking. Uh, and you're now on the roadshow, like going around giving talks or something? Yeah, I went to London right after the book came out, um, like literally the day after. And I went to a chain analysis conference. And then after that, I went to a conference at Oxford. Um, and that was actually really meaningful because I had done study abroad at Oxford. And all I can say is like, when you go to a place that that's so close to your heart and that was so formative for you, like after a major milestone in your life, like I was very emotional just walking around Oxford. <laughs> um, I'm sure people were like, why does this lady keep crying everywhere? Um, <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, I um, like, and obviously just going to the chain analysis conference was really wonderful because, you know, they helped me um, with a, 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 so much in the book, but obviously they had done that demixing portion for the Dow investigation, which was great. And actually, uh, I, I will step away at a certain point and get you a, a really cool thing that somebody gave me, which was this FBI challenge coin. And it's like a, a coin that I guess these FBI special agents have, and it like says nice things on it. Um, yeah. And then I had my book signing in, in New York last week, and it was totally sold out, which is awesome because apparently that's not a common thing. Um, so it was great. And so many people came up and said hello. And then, yeah, now I'm in San Francisco I have a reading tonight at the Commonwealth Club, and then I'll be in Seattle tomorrow. And there's more events coming up. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very like fun time for me. How does it feel? Oh my God, like amazing, honestly. I mean, I just can't even begin to tell you. First of all, you know, announcing the news about the Dow attacker on the day my book came out, that was just incredible. And obviously it was a huge boost for the book and, you know, just kind of, I think really got people talking about the book and, um, and was just great because, you know, I poured so much of myself into this book, uh, over the last few years. And so to be able to launch it in that way. And, um, and frankly, also I had spent so much time trying to figure out who had done it. <laughs> um, so that was, that was really nice. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, you know, just like people have been saying such nice, th nice things. Like, uh, the day that I revealed that news, people were tweeting at me that I was the goat, um, which was just <laughs> great. You know, um, people obviously aren't usually very complimentary toward, oh yes. Thank you. That's well, the, that's well, the book. I, I do have a copy somewhere. Focus. Oh, here. I've got one here. 
Yes, I, I have friends uh, who are visiting Mint, so this is one of their copies. Got my copy. I have to say, it is a it is a very long book. I have not made a lot of progress in the book so far. It's been a busy week in crypto land, as we're going to talk about today. But um, I am I am incredibly proud of you. This is so oh, awesome. And oh, you're so your sweet. book Thank has been you. your book has been killing it. It's been like the number one crypto book on Amazon, which is Thank crazy because given how popular crypto is. So it seems like. Surprisingly, it seems like kind of nothing has gone wrong, which is also very surprising for launching something that you've been working on for multiple years. I know. I know. I mean, between that and then the funny thing is, so you're in the middle of it. So, you know, I won't like reveal too much, but, but in my personal opinion, there's just like so many bombshells um, in the book. Like just, there's just so much new stuff that I uncovered and like whole storylines that weren't even known before. And so it's just funny because this weekend, Charles Hoskinson like tweeted something in, about my book, how it was like a work of fiction, which is kind of rich considering that if you read the book, you will find out that, you know, he has a tenuous relationship to the truth. So it was a little bit, at least that's what the people who lived and worked with him said. And, you know, all their stories are very similar to each other. And so I was like, okay, well, I also found out that, you know, what you claim about your education does not match what the school's records show. So I tweeted about that. And like, that has also blown things up. And I noticed, I think it like even boosted sales of the book. Um, Cause people have been tweeting at me like, oh, since you found this out, I'm going to buy the book now. And I'm like, oh, well, if you think that that's interesting, wait till you read the book. Cause there's like a lot more in there. <laughs> so, but yeah, like I was a little bit like, that's, the criticism you're going to give me? Like, if that's the criticism, then maybe you should look at your own history. I have one question for you, actually, from the perspective of, you know, being an author and a journalist, how does it differ in terms of your process when it's like you're the secret bearer for many years and you have all these breaking stories that you have to collect until you hit some, you know, you're like foraging for mush for truffles and you have to hit a certain number of truffles before you're allowed to kind of let them debut at, you know, some fancy restaurant. Interesting analogy, Taran. <laughs> that was one thing because, you know, I found out this thing about Charles's education years ago, but I couldn't reveal it, obviously, until the book came out. And there were so many things like that. But it wasn't like I was holding off on publishing until I had some number of things, you know, it was just like, I was trying to get the story. Basically, that was kind of the main thing I was just after, like, like, you know, what happened at that time? Like, you know, I want to talk to all these different people. I want to like make sure I kind of get all the perspectives. So I'm like getting the fullest version and the the most accurate version. So really, yeah, part of it, it I kind of, it was a little bit hard kind of knowing like all this stuff and then not being able to talk about it and also worrying, like, am I going to get scooped? Like, are other people going to get this story and just get it out in an article before my book? You know, so that was like a little bit of a stress. Like, and then just weird things around, you know, when we, you know, felt like we had an identity for the Dow attacker, you know, that all happened at the very last minute. Like the book was like basically nearly done. And it was at the point in time where I was not allowed to make anything but the most minimal changes. And then, yeah, then it was like, okay, we're going to have to make a very big change, you know? Um, so we had to like push the publication date. And then, yeah, there was just like, certain things like you'll see that in the book, that section is like much briefer than what we put in the Forbes article, because since most of the book was finished, the publisher was like, 
you know, you have to stick to a certain word count. And it was basically like, we're going to remove what you previously wrote about the Dow and then insert this new thing. <laughs> um, so I, so the Forbes article just has a lot more because like I had more room because they were even saying things like, oh, the more you change, it even changes things like the size of the book jacket. And like, it's too late in the process to, oh, wow. you know what I mean? So it's just like, Damn. there were so many downstream effects that they the were just like- The original book jacket is an NFT. Now, now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we, did, we didn't change it because I, I did stick to the word count, but, you know, there were just like issues like that. So, um, it, it, yeah, it was crazy. And then, of course, I was like nervous that somebody was going to break the news and they were going to like find out the identity and then they were going to just reveal it before my book came out. And like, that was a whole thing that we were worried about. And like. So whatever happened to the 10X founder after the revelations? I'm sure Robert is a big 10X whale, so I'm sure he's very interested to know. OG, OG well. No, I'm kidding. I mean, he sent me his denial. Uh, I haven't seen, you know, anything else. I don't think he's released any additional statements. I did see that Mimo Capital, where he's like a co-founder initially in their Telegram group, they like closed the chat down and they were just like, you know, uh, we were looking into these allegations, whatever. But then it revived a few days later and they were just like, he doesn't have daily involvement anyway. Like, you know, he, he's like long, long, you know, not been involved with the project, stuff like that. And so, Sounds you know, like but, crypto. yeah, but the one good thing is, um, you know, I haven't seen a lot of people being like, you're wrong. Like this, you know, this clearly is you're off your rock or whatever. Um, I think a lot of people recognize like, okay, the evidence is very strong. And then even like beyond just the things about like, you know, what happened to that money and whatever, when you go back and fill in the story and you're like, Oh, this was someone who was like very into the DAO. They were looking at the code. They identified flaws. They had reached out to the creators about it. They, you know, had written blog posts about the flaws. Like, I mean, just all the things. And like, even the the exact problems they were talking about were the ones that eventually had to force Ethereum to hard fork because otherwise they would have been in DAO wars forever. He identified all that at that time. And so like, it just even made sense when you went back, you know, so... Um, I think people realize like, okay, it makes sense, like from both sides. Like, so yeah, I think that's why there hasn't been any pushback, at least not yet. So, oh, have any of you finished the book or? Guys, have any of you finished the book? <laughs> I will admit, and I'm being radically honest and transparent that I've yet to start the book, but I will start the book. Well, you have a good, <laughs> you have a good excuse, which is, I know you have a newborn on your hands. So I imagine you're probably not sleeping very much. Yeah, Tarun, you've got Tarun. You have no excuse, Tarun. You got no. You're just sitting there drinking beer. Yeah, he's he's just hanging out in his apartment, just doing nothing. The diet coke. I'm the one drinking beer. I have robot beer this for robot ventures. There oh wow, that's very cool. You know, there's just too many math papers ahead of me. That I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's the truth. I'm giving you radical transparency. <laughs> Radical. That's what we're all about here on the chopping block is radical. Why am I not surprised that that's Tarun's reason? And why do I totally 100% believe that reason? <laughs> it's just, you know, I have a stack of things. It's like, it's on there. It's going in my suitcase when I'm traveling. So that as soon as I finish this queue, then I, I move into the book, but <laughs> well, is it a stack or is it a queue? You yeah, know, is it a stack I, or is it a queue? That's correct, an important question. Well, that's a great joke. That's a very bad but hilarious CS joke. No, it's it's a queue. It's not a stack. If it was a stack, that would be bad for for book reading time. I actually but. think it's more like a mempool, and some of these compete with each other, and it's not a stack <laughs> like, or a queue. Transaction fees are going up in the mempool. You're about to get ejected, unfortunately. 
I mean, four hundred page book, book is is a is a long is a large bundle of transactions. After all, yeah, it's true. Now it's we're true. getting super super nerdy. Here. Yeah. All right, Tom, your turn for the confessional of why you haven't read Laura's book. I've been moving. You know, I'm I'm in I'm in New York. I've been I've been traveling around, so you know, I haven't had a, been able to sit in a place and prop my feet up and read it. But it is sitting on my Kindle, so I'm looking forward to reading it. Cool. Okay. Okay. So by next time, we'll have to submit our reviews. Um, yeah. On, yeah. Uh, yeah, you Chopping Block Book Club. Chopping Block Book Club. First, re- first up is well, I, I, I do think I do think it would be interesting to see what each of us thinks is the most shocking revelation. You know, like like BuzzFeed article style. Like this, this breaking my, crypto my story will shock my, you. Yeah. <laughs> By next meeting, it'll all be in the first twenty pages. <laughs> I mean, the, the most shocking thing I read in the first twenty pages is that Vitalik could speak when he was eight years old. Now you have to skip whatever to it was two hundred and then start reading. That that way you get yeah. you know unique insights. I have a feeling I know what you guys will be most shocked about. Um, but and I'm surprised you haven't heard. I have tried to ask people not to do too many spoilers. So Laura, have been fun. Real. Bye, enjoy, your, enjoy your book reading. Bask in the sunlight of all the love that you're receiving. Oh, thank you, thank you. All right, see you guys. Okay. Have fun. Okay, so um, the big news of the week, uh, or of the last two weeks, has been, of course, the uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So um, this is this is this is a topic that. So I was actually in Ukraine last year because uh, a number of the companies that we've invested into uh, were based in Ukraine. So last year I was in Kiev and, and Lviv in, in last summer. So I know Ukraine quite well. So it's been really terrible, and our, and our sympathy goes out to all the the, the victims in, in Ukraine who are fighting back against the Russian invaders. Um, but it's been a story that not only has uh, gripped the world, but it's also one that has uh, a lot to say about what's going on in, in crypto. And in fact, it has had massive effects on the on the crypto market. So, you know, I won't I won't belabor a lot of the news about the details of the invasion itself. But the there were a number of different elements of the aftermath of both the invasion and the sanctions that uh, ensued from the invasion of Ukraine that had a lot of effects on crypto. So, just to go through a very brief summary of the news. So first was that, um, so Ukraine has obviously been very active in social media um, through the official Ukraine Twitter account. And one of the things that they've been calling for is the, the, the blocking of Russian accounts within crypto exchanges. And um, actually there's been uh, uh, equivalent calls within the US from some um, uh, sort of US lawmakers to also do the same thing. Uh, now, the majority of exchanges have denied these requests to, to not freeze Russian accounts. And to be clear, these are not accounts of Russia, the nation state, but rather of Russian individuals. So Binance announced that they wouldn't be freezing uh, Russian accounts. There was actually a large uh, announcement by Coinbase that there are 25,000 wallets linked to Russian illicit, illicit activity uh, that they were going to be blocking uh, that were that uh, were belonged by Russian users. But it was unclear um, what exactly this had to do with sanctions or if this is just an unrelated, you know, some kind of uh, illegal fraud ring or something like that, that they were uh, shutting down accounts for. We saw massive spikes in volume in rubles. Um, so unsurprisingly, there was a lot of demand within Russia for getting access to crypto, especially as the sanctions were starting to close in. Enormous amount of financial organizations are now cut off within Russia. Um, so we saw uh, a lot of demand for crypto and Bitcoin within uh, within Russia. We saw uh, not only the withdrawal of an enormous amount of banks that were that basically left Operations in, in Russia. We also saw Visa and MasterCard uh, shut off any access to cardholders in Russia. We saw sanctions from multiple countries. Uh, pretty much everything in NATO and in the EU, even in Singapore, was was uh, sanctioning Russia. 
And you also saw some interesting things happening on the Ukrainian side. So for one, there was uh, an announcement that Ukraine was going to give a, an airdrop to crypto users. And, and Ukraine actually posted their crypto wallets uh, on chain, which were verified by some of the you know, prominent members of the crypto community to, to solicit donations. And we saw over $40 million in crypto donations go to these uh, uh, addresses associated with Ukraine. Uh, we also saw a, um, there was an, an NFT, uh, a number of NFT fundraisers, uh, one of which raised, I think, like $5 million for a NFT of the Ukrainian flag that was donated entirely to, to Ukraine. Uh, you can see here we've got Dune Analytics up showing uh, about $40 million in, um, in total donations between ETH, DAI, USDC, and, and a few other assets. Ukraine even announced that they were going to do an airdrop. Uh, it was unclear what the airdrop was or what who was going to get the airdrop, if it was you know donated or something. They later announced they were canceling the airdrop, but they were going to be selling NFTs. And I think, I believe right now, it's it's not yet public, the details of all of this. So it's been basically the first crypto war that we've seen, you know, the first uh, armed conflict and obviously the most major armed conflict in, in Europe since World War II. And, and crypto has had a very strange role to play on both sides, both within Russia and um, in Ukraine. So curious to get your guys' thoughts on, on what's been happening over the last couple of weeks. Tom, why don't you start given that you are, I, you I are first say, on the list? I do have it on good authority that the, the NFT sale is happening. So that should be interesting to see oh, good. What, what, how that actually looks. But yeah, I, I think you know, it's went through so many different phases where people thought the crypto addresses that Ukraine posted weren't real to um, criticizing you know, crypto donations saying, hey, they actually need you know money. This isn't real money. How are they going to off ramp it to um, now? I think there's a stat that came out. It was like like 70 percent of the arms suppliers to Ukraine are like are accepting crypto directly. They're not off ramping into fiat. They're just accepting crypto payments directly, which is kind of insane to think about. I know it just feels like, you know, generally speaking, there isn't a whole lot of of, of clarity. It feels like just sort of a people have money and they want to sling it at something. And this kind of feels like the next thing that people are aping into is it's, you know, Constitution Dow like in many ways where it's like, this is something that I think is I believe in and I want to donate to and I want to I want to back. I think the the weird thing, though, is that the donations are not necessarily going to like humanitarian causes. It's not like, hey, this is going to Ukrainian refugees. A, a lot of the donations are going to like purchase arms for the Ukrainian military, which I think is a very kind of strange and scary precedent. I, certainly they need the money to defend themselves, but I don't know how many people who are donating are thinking about the fact that you know, the money that they're using is going to be used to, to kill people. And it's kind of insane. You have global fundraising uh, for this army, uh, which is like never really been done before in, in human history. That is actually not true. Wasn't there, wasn't there some army that like launched a fundraiser? I can't remember this. Um, what do you guys know what I'm talking about? There was like some uh, armed conflict so, that they so launched. There, like, there was one, GoFundMe or something. one during uh, peak pandemic between Armenia and Azerbaijan which was settled by Turkey sending in drones and bombing the shit out of Armenia. And that was like, I'm surprised no one called that as crazy as kind of the stuff we're seeing now, because that was like, there are two countries fighting over this disputed region. And then this third party country just sends in a bunch of drones and like picks the winner. And then like we moved on and like the world just kind of forgot. It's, it's about this con conflict region called Nagorno-Karabakh uh, in, in that area. Um, but they did, the Armenian side, if I remember correctly, did have a GoFundMe. Oh, a GoFundMe. I think yes, it was a GoFundMe, a GoFundMe. And I think they had, they were thinking about doing an NFT, something. There was like, it was like right 
I vaguely like, remember this. It was like late this, 2020, yeah. early 2021, but it was like a little too early. Like, I feel like the yeah. open sea boom had just not quite taken off around the time. Like, it was the nifty gateway days. I'm surprised that happened because there was actually a GoFundMe for crypto. This is, of course, the other classic criticism of crypto. Well, you can just do this with fiat. You, know, you can just wire in your money. You can just send Venmo. Um, and so there was a GoFundMe to um, send money to the Ukrainian military, and they shut it down um, because they have a policy against fundraising for weapon sales. And so, you know, it's like actually a great example of where like, yeah, there really is no other possible thing you could do here other than, you know, use cryptocurrencies. I mean, well, what's wrong with, I mean, the reality is like almost every Western government is already using tax dollars to, to uh, sure. you know, basically fund, you know, a donation of arms to, to Ukraine. So at the margin, it's not making a huge amount of difference. You know, 40 million is a pretty small drop in the bucket relative to the total amount of aid that's gone to the Ukrainian military. Sure. It's just very direct. And that's never really been, been done before. And I don't think most people who are donating are considering that. Like, I don't really think this sort of, you know, direct contribution to like a armed conflict has, has really been done. And it's, it's sort of maybe a bit scary to think about, hey, you know, maybe in this scenario, these are the good guys. They're, you know, this is our side. Um, but you can imagine, you know, this is sort of, you know, not too uh, uh, far removed from the whole assassination market meme from 2016. You know, you can imagine that that uh, this is sort of you know, a step in that direction. I mean, I, I think the thing about this war and one of the reasons why it's been so galvanizing in the West is that it, it's like probably one of the few examples of a just war that we've seen in the last, you know, call it 40 years, where it's very easy to identify the aggressor. There was there was very little provocation. Certainly, you know, Putin invading the Donbass is one thing, but him going and trying to basically attack Kiev, the capital, which is in Western Ukraine, which is which is not even ethnically Russian. You know, it's like they speak Ukrainian. They don't speak Russian there. They're, they're more European. Like I was there. They're much, it's, it's, it's like a European city. You know, him basically going in and ransacking the entire country was just very clearly unprovoked. There was no, there was no first strike by Ukraine. And to have a conflict that's that clean and also that public and also where, you know, the, the, of course, you know, Zelensky, the president of, of Ukraine has been incredibly charismatic and has also very effectively used social media and, um, and, and, uh, the press to, galvanize the world toward, uh, you know, wanting to, to come to Ukraine's help. So I think that I think it's one of the reasons why this war feels so different relative to other conflicts in the past where, you know, I, I suspect that, you know, I, I, if, if I were to donate money to Ukraine, I would not be surprised that they would use it to, to buy arms. But I think most people are, are OK with that for this war relative to most other wars. I mean, especially the people donating, I think, probably believe that. Right. It's not donating to an extremely morally nebulous <laughs> recipient. Right. I mean, the problem is you don't know the recipient, theoretically, right? But, but if, we, if, we, if we assume that like, it, it's, it's technically who, it, who it's claimed to be. I mean, historically, there have been tons of wars funded in kind of indirect manners over the lot. Like, you know, whenever people like, the U.S. funded the Contras via selling weapons and doing like all this weird... It's no different than this if we squint enough. Well, I think right? to Tom's point, though, that's a state actor, right? It's a state actor funding a war. As but it's a state actor actors. doing it via these, like, kind of this, like, the tentacles of, like, hey, we're, like, technically funding it via these weird organizations, and there's many of them, and they all have to somehow collude. And, like, this removes the coordination pressure of needing the state actor, but it kind of gets the same outcome. Yeah, but it's individual to nation as opposed to, like, nation to nation. Yeah, that's true. <sighs> Although it's like a little bit weird, because like if I think about the Argentina stuff, right, where like 
um, they took the Argentinian like warship as collateral for not paying back the bond. That's like the inverse version of this, right? In some ways. So like we've seen the other <laughs> side happen. So it's like I, I I kind of feel like you could argue that the like Elliott management heist of Argentina is like not is like the inverse of this. And like you could probably rig the bond market to kind of like let you do this. The war bonds are selling I don't understand. So one thing I don't get the difference of is the difference between the war bonds, the raw war bonds, and the cryptocurrency raise. So, like, I, if we, cause like, I've seen these things are like Ukraine raising $230 million war bond type headlines. Presumably, that's just like Western governments buying those bonds or can individuals and entities like that. that that's, that's something where I've been kind of confused about like where this is going. Like, how do the corporate finances of a, a nation look like when they like have debt issuance plus like cryptocurrency donation? And like they have to like manage that treasury. Yeah, it is a good question of like how good is the Ukrainian crypto opsec? Like, are they like do they even have a multi-sig? Is it just like one dude's address? I think that's probably likely. But yeah, I it, it does seem like look, I mean the, the the crypto donations are obviously coming from retail and just random people around the world who are who feel passionate about the cause. It is a much easier way to donate than most other forms of donation at this point. And certainly it's more direct, right? So you know, if I if I'm looking at one of these like TV fundraisers for Ukraine, I have very little confidence that it's actually going to Ukraine or that it's not going to get, you know, chopped up into tiny little pieces and taxed along the way. Whereas if I donate to the Ukrainian crypto address on Twitter, I actually have pretty high confidence they're going to go turn around and, you know, buy AK-47s with that, which is which is in, in a way it's like a great endorsement for crypto for use cases like this. It's a great endorsement for crypto, but there's also the risk on the other side, which is you know, the story that I'm most concerned about and aware of is that, you know, with the imposition of sanctions on Russia, the story that's coming out in crypto right now is concern from politicians that crypto will be used to evade those sanctions. And it's serving as a catalyst or a justification to impose draconian restrictions on crypto, crypto exchanges, etc., and I, I think it's probably the most important sort of, you know, reaction to what's happening with crypto is that, yes, crypto is being used in new and exciting ways. And that's creating a lot of fear, at least within the U.S., to offset it. I think net-net, there's some extremely positive things happening in the crypto, but it's creating more of a pushback than I expected very rapidly. So I, I yeah, so I, I tweeted about this in that um, I basically said that, like, I don't think the language of using crypto to evade sanctions, I think is like a total non sequitur. Because the reality is that the sanctions were very well defined, right? There were certain things that are sanctioned and certain things that are not included in the, in the package of sanctions. You can include crypto in sanctions. There's nothing, there's nothing that says you can't, uh, but they're not included. But in fact, some of the, some of the sanctions were OFAC restrictions on, you know, basically transacting with certain parties. And whether you are sending dollar bills or whether you're sending uh, crypto, OFAC restrictions are universal. It doesn't matter what you're transacting with. So there are parties that are now on the OFAC list that you cannot transact with that are, I think they're all Russian banks, right? So you cannot transact with these Russian banks and Russian state-owned enterprises, whether you're using crypto or not. But transacting with private Russian citizens or with other companies in Russia that are not on the sanctions list, it is fine. Whether you're using dollars or whether you're using uh, crypto, like the idea that it is evading sanctions, quote-unquote, for you to, for Russia to transact in crypto, well, okay, was it evading sanctions for Russia to trans transact in RMB? 
No, obviously not, right? That's that's a, a total non sequitur. So crypto is just not in the category of things that we can use as sanctions or that we have chosen to use as sanctions, but we could if we so chose. If, if the U.S. said, look, Coinbase, you are not allowed to send transactions to anybody who is verified to be Russian, then done. We have sanctions on, on Russian citizens, but we didn't do that. You know, it also I think, ties back a little bit to the whole Canadian trucker you know, Bitcoin thing in, in some way where it like, you know, they also got, got deplatformed. And um, actually, Joe Weisenthal from Bloomberg had a good piece today talking about how, you know, all these opportunities, not that I think also there was, a, I think the Treasury put out a piece saying like, it's not even like really technically feasible for Russia to like meaningfully, you know, conduct business using crypto as it is today. But certainly something like this, you know, these these crowd funds, it's like the more crypto sort of plays to its strengths by basically creating this independent you know, uh, financial system and sort of do the thing that it, it's supposed to do. It also is, is somewhat bearish in that it sort of creates this bigger target on its back for regulators. And so it's like the strengths of it in, in some ways are also sort of its downside. Um, and so you sort of making this case for, for Bitcoin, but maybe true across crypto more broadly. Yeah, I mean, beyond the obviously enormous humanitarian costs that we're now seeing as, um, you know, we have north of a million, I think a, a million and a half refugees now across Europe as a result of the invasion of Ukraine. We're also seeing, of course, as a result of these sanctions and, and just as a result of the, the instability that we're now seeing in Eastern Europe, enormous effects on commodity prices. And so you're seeing, especially oil and natural gas being the most obvious, we're probably going to see a significant spike in inflation uh, globally because of, because of uh, what's going on in Russia. And that's going to magnify the effects that we've already seen at the beginning of this year of the inflation in the U.S. It doesn't spell a great year for crypto um, and for broader financial markets. And, and you're already seeing that both in equities and in crypto prices over the last week. It's a little bit um, cold to sort of look at uh, a humanitarian crisis like this in terms of uh, the, the the financial consequences of it. And I'm always reminded that, you know, we have some of the entrepreneurs that we, that we backed are actually in Ukraine right now. And um, right now, every able-bodied man, I think between 18 and 60, has been effectively conscripted into the Ukrainian army and they have to, they have to fight. Um, and so some of our entrepreneurs are right now fighting in Ukraine um, to protect the, the country from, from, from Putin. So um, it's a really terrible situation and we hope that it resolves peacefully soon, but it, it seems less and less likely that that's going to happen. I also want to point out that, um, you know, in the, <clears throat> the history of this industry actually really started quite heavily in places that I, I'm not sure newer members of, of, of this space might not remember, but Georgia and Ukraine. So like Bitfury, if you remember them, I mean, they still exist, but I don't think they're anywhere near their prior stage. They kind of got beat out by Bitname, but they were at one point the largest mining miner in the world. They're founded in Ukraine and they basically used to, they spurred on a huge sort of like industry of like Eastern European people. Like there's like the Bitfury mafia, which sort of like led to a lot of, the developers that are in this space from like 2015 to 18, 19, you know, I'm sure a lot of them are dealing with things that are kind of not great. So uh, kind of my thoughts out to them as well. I feel like they're not, people kind of forget that like the early days of crypto were actually really, really Romania, Ukraine and Russia were like where every single developer was. So. That's right. It's still a very important um, area of, of a lot of builders in crypto. Um, I just wanted to um, close out this segment by talking about what prediction markets are saying. And actually, a little bit out of style, I'm actually not looking at um, any crypto prediction markets because they don't have a lot of liquidity. But 
Um, if you look at Metaculus, which is one of the non-crypto prediction markets, uh, right now they uh, they believe that the likelihood that Kiev falls to Russia by the uh, by April, um, so basically by the end of this month, is currently about twenty five percent. It was much higher at the start of the invasion. It was about ninety percent when the invasion started. So it seems like the the tide has really turned um, on the likelihood of of Russian success in this invasion. The likelihood that Russia controls Kiev by June is currently at forty six percent, meaning that um, people believe that it's about fifty fifty that Kiev will fall to Russia uh, within two months. So obviously, I'm hoping that uh, Kiev is able to hold strong, but um, it's a tough conflict ahead of them. Anyway, um, let's move away from some of the more sober topics and talk a little bit more into, into crypto land. So one of the things that's been going on this week is there's been a huge spat of fundraising announcements. There are a lot of new funds that are uh, launched recently. Um, first, we have Electric. They announced a $1 billion fund. Um, this is split between two vehicles. Uh, supposedly, one is a liquid crypto vehicle that's $600 million, and then a early stage fund that's $400 million. Um, so supposedly it's a billion dollars between the two of them. Yeah, a virtual, uh, amazing timing um, to have, you know, 600 million to dry powder right now when, when it seems like prices are uh, have come down quite a bit. Um, you can see him there laughing at how cheap everything looks and <laughs> after, after everything that's gone on in the last few weeks. So Electric's got a billion. Uh, next up, we've got, um, to, actually, this was announced today, uh, a very interesting um, kind of social media bonanza so Bain Capital announced that they were launching a $560 million fund, and they announced it slightly unwittingly on um, International Women's Day, which is today. They basically got piled on on, on Twitter because of the, um, the, the particulars around uh, how they actually made the announcement. I think if you can, uh, Tom, if you want to, if you want to yeah. show one of, the, uh, one of the tweets. So we had uh, no less than Mark Andreessen jumping on them on Twitter, as well as uh, Half of crypto Twitter basically this is uh, dunking on them. Yeah, this is this is this is a pretty good one. It's a, it's, uh, just a little um, little on the nose the way they uh, tried to position themselves very proudly. I think in the in the announcement it was like it is my great privilege to announce that we raised a shitload of money to invest in crypto, and people were like, "Yeah, you got that right." You know, all, all that be, all that being said, um, obviously it, it's uh, still a lot of money coming into crypto. Um, from top of funnel, even if it's not people buying Bitcoin and Ether on the public markets, we've got, you know, VCs to the rescue to come in and bid up private deals. So I don't know. How are you guys uh, seeing the the huge influx of capital uh, coming oh, in? You forgot about VCs? Golden Tree, which is another oh, $600 that's right. million Tree, dollar fund. That's right. That's right. Uh, Avi, Avi from uh, Block Tower is, is going to run Golden Tree $600 million fund. Uh, of course, we've got uh, Andreessen's $4.5 billion fund that's in the works. My understanding is that that's being fundraised right now. I believe Katie Hahn's fund, which is a billion dollars between an early stage and a growth stage fund, is also closing. So there's a lot of activity going on right now in uh, crypto fundraising. There's no shortage of capital coming into the space. The, the, I mean, the weird thing, of course, is that most of this is earmarked for private deals. And there's not that much, uh, except I guess maybe some of Andreessen's fund is going into publics. But it feels like there's going to be a big mismatch between the dollars earmarked for privates and for publics for the, for the next while. I agree. I mean, if huge amounts of capital go into privates, you know, there's really two paths for any organization, the equity path and the token path. And obviously some of it's going to go into the equity path, but I think it's going to go into a lot of companies, foundations, organizations that create tokens as well. And I think that's where the mismatch is. So 
you know, companies with, you know, investors staying on the equity path forever, you know, eventually they IPO and, you know, they stay, you know, equity businesses. But when there's a token, if there's going to be a hundred new projects essentially creating publicly traded assets, you know, in one way or another, you know, you run the risk of there being a, a mismatch or being off of equilibrium where there's too many projects and not enough demand in the later stages of its life cycle. And so obviously some of this is going into equity deals, you know, but a lot of it's going into projects, you know, all, th- all of those firms mentioned that are creating tradable tokens and digital assets. And, you know, I feel like the biggest risk is that there's too much supply and not enough demand two years from now. I, I actually think the, the, the question is like, are these funds structured in a way that they can like hedge fund style, like I guess like the the original paradigm fund kind of be able to do venture deals plus to liquid tokens and like and like move between them seamlessly. I suspect that that's not true because a lot of them are raised as venture funds, as far as I can tell from filings and stuff. But it does beg the question of like, will there suddenly be also this like a difference in like liquidity terms? where people want like token warrants that like go liquid faster or stuff like that. Like, I think that's going to be the interesting thing to look at is like, will teams that make tokens have to deliver tokens to investors way faster than right now? Because these investors have these like kind of vehicles that have a certain amount of time that they have to return by. And then if they do that, then like they just need the liquidity as fast as possible. And then that might be like bad for the market to, to Robert's point supply wise. Or you see the opposite, right? So if you have 10-year vehicles, they don't need liquidity for 10 years, right? And it goes the other way, where the pendulum swings towards there's no liquidity up front for the founders, for the investors, whatever, where the market demands or the market expects that, you know, it becomes liquid over a much longer and slower period of time. I think, you know, Tarun, you mentioned uh, Paradigm Fund. And, you know, I think the, the difference between like now and four years ago is you can't you know, fill up a big chunk of the fund with like Bitcoin or Ether and you know, expect to take you know, two on 20 on that. Now people can just go out and, and, and buy that directly. And so if anything, it's like you can't just compare like the numbers that we're seeing apples to oranges uh, compared to four years ago. If anything, these are like larger because they're explicitly bookmarked for like early private venture. Um, and so it's just like a lot of money going into the market. Yeah, although you see things like Andreessen buying a ton of Lido and putting a ton of ETH into Lido last week. And I feel like that suggests to me that the structure of these things is does allow for some liquid purchases. And it's not like this is maybe the raise of venture funds, but the docs probably have some some kind of caveat that like allows people to do some form of trading that's like low frequency enough. Well, there's nothing about a venture fund that disallows you from from trading. It's not it's not the most ideal vehicle for it. But, um, you know, and recent, I think all of their funds have actually been able to buy uh, tokens. OTC, the yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's more annoying. From yes, like a yes. <laughs> it's not back your team is generally not built for that, but like, yeah, you you totally can. But I think what you're also seeing is that there's just the the disconnect in pricing between publics and privates. Like, I I was just chatting with uh, an investor earlier today about notional finance. If you guys you, actually, Tom, you you were talking about this earlier. Notional finance right now. So they're basically um, what is it like a fixed rate protocol? Their market cap, their circulating market cap right now is six point five million. And they have 500 million TVL, 75 million fully diluted market cap, right? You know, just like a hot, a hot seed round is getting done at 75 fully diluted. Whereas this is like a protocol that has 500 million TVL. So you know, that being said, it's not just positive to just point out one protocol that, that doesn't have a high valuation. 
But it goes to show that uh, there's just a massive, massive disconnect in supply and demand right now for what you see in privates and what you see in publics. Yeah, agreed. I think, you know, it, it's not just supply and demand. I think investors are also thinking about EV and they have, you know, many years to deploy. And I think if the EV of doing these private deals continues to go down as public markets draw down, private markets are going to shrink you know, as a result, or we're just not going to see as many deals getting done. Like things just aren't going to clear. I mean, the only, the only real answer is that like prices have to go down and ownership has to go up, right? Like these things have to become more and more sort of VC coins where VCs own a large and large chunk. Otherwise they just can't put the money to work. Other than that, I don't really see a way that this capital can get absorbed given where, given where prices are and, and, and how many, how few private deals there are that can really absorb large amounts of capital and stay fully decentralized. Last time uh, in 2018, this led to the equity bonanza boom of funding equity, not token related crypto companies, right? And I suspect we'll probably start seeing kind of a switch in that. I, I kind of remember sort of electric kind of claiming that something was actually wrote something in their blog post announcing the fund to be like, Hey, we're going to start doing more companies, less tokens or not exactly that, but like it had that sort of intonation. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's what they told LPs that like, Hey, we're like entering the new phase of like companies need capital for being in crypto, not just tokens. I mean, I think you're already seeing it. I'm not picking on companies like alchemy, but like you have companies that have absolutely bonkers valuations, you know, for their traction and revenue like alchemy because they can absorb and soak up a lot of capital you know from investors and it's a you know palatable politically correct company right where it's like there's no token risk it's like yeah you can shove hundreds of millions of dollars into it at increasing valuations and the valuation can get really in front of the traction and I think you're already seeing that. Yeah, who's you know. the last buyer <laughs> that's the hard part <laughs> yeah eventually it has to be an IPO like yeah well S- silver lake who's very famous for looks at watch buying skype <laughs> they've done some great deals though they've done some great deal i think they've, they've made a killing off airbnb yeah 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 i'm, I'm just Silver-like pointing out that like you know right right sure yeah <laughs> right but like when private companies with like modest revenue are trading for like five billion dollars like you should be worried yeah yeah. To be fair, though, the ML boom was no different. Like, I remember seeing price to revenue on some of these self-driving car, not even just self-driving car companies, just like perception yeah, AI no revenue. companies. None of them had revenue. Well, yeah. they, all, they all would like sign an LOI and claim that that was revenue. But yeah, let's, let's, sure. let's, ignore, well, all like, the kind, I mean, let's ignore all the like, yeah. growth hacking tricks. I mean, alchemy is very different because it's just like a very easy to underwrite business, right? You get customers, you get, you advertise, you like get them in, you have SaaS pricing. It's I like, mean, for all of these staking service providers, right? Like at the like one to $10 billion range, right? Like block damage is like three something, figments like 1.6, whatever. Let's just pr- pretend that they like dominate, and AWS has to buy someone. Would they actually buy them at that price? Like that's like that that thought experiment's the one that like kind of confuses. No, they build. They would build because they have the technology is able to be built, right? Also, they all of those people use AWS, so they just can easily snoop on that <laughs> their traffic. Like I, I, that would be what I would do if I was at AWS, right? Like. I, I, I actually, I doubt that AWS would, would build, but they don't need to buy the leader, right? Like, I mean, that's the problem with all these staking providers that they're, they're basically all, they basically all the same product, right? It's like very fungible. It's very replaceable. It's just a matter of the overall security and like the, the kind of balance sheet that's backing them in case they get slashed or they mess up. So 
if AWS needs to buy somebody, they don't need to buy the biggest player. Um, like, I don't know why you would. You don't, you don't really need to. Yeah, Amazon should buy Lido tokens on the open market. That's the <laughs> That's probably disclosure, right. That's disclosure, Lido investors. Yeah, yeah, we are we are actually I think all of us are Lido investors. So it's a tricky situation. And I think for us, um, you know, I think pr- probably the way that we want to be playing at Dragonfly, the investing over the next year, given the mismatch in supply and demand of capital, is just one, staying out of the US, you know, where you're seeing these things getting done at like north of hundred X revenue. Um, you just go outside of the U.S., even whether it's emerging markets or LATAM or Asia, things are much, much, much lower than 100x revenue or even 70x revenue, where I'm seeing a lot of deals getting done in the U.S., even now at those at those multiples. So I think that's a large part of the answer for us. And then also just stay early stage, because if you're early stage enough, then do seed always works. No matter where you are in the market cycle, seed always works. Doesn't necessarily so the problem is all the, all the big gorillas are coming down to seed. They can't. You know, how are they going to, you know, that's what they're proclaiming. Let's put that. Yes, that is what they're proclaiming. That is what they're proclaiming. But like, you you know, listen to the economics, right? If you're, if a seed bet is like a basis point of your fund, it doesn't like, it doesn't make sense. Like you're not going to be spending. Well, then you spray and pray at a thousand of those. Right. The question is simply, can your brand withstand that, right? Like, are you going to keep winning those deals when people know that you're just spraying and praying? It eventually catches up to you, right? It takes some time for the market signal to propagate. But eventually it gets there, right? Like you don't give your seed round to Silver Lake. It just doesn't, it's not how it works. And eventually that signal catches up. That's my view. That's my view. Anyway, let's let's move on. Um, so another big news item of the week is Andre Cronier. Andre, uh, once again, rage quit, supposedly this time for the final time. Uh, he announced a sunset for all the projects that he's been responsible for. Great illustration. To that, I gotta love Cointelegraph. Gotta love yeah, Cointelegraph. Always on it. Always on it. Just the great, great graphics. So, uh, yeah, so obviously associated with Yearn, although he hasn't been active on Yearn for quite a while, supposedly, according to Banteg. Um, also uh, involved in Phantom, um, also involved in Solidly. Uh, a lot of the projects in the Andreosphere have uh, have tanked in price since the announcement of his uh, uh, of his defection. How do people feel about the Andre rug pull, as it's been called? I view it as a rug pull. I mean, the dude has according to people on Twitter, amassed like a billion dollars of wealth for himself <laughs> and is leaving with no sense of responsibility. Towards I don't know how, if you're going to be able to sell that much MIM and abracadabra. Let's just as a heads up, I, I don't, don't mark to market on that one. Yeah. Well, even if you're not marking to market, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, probably one of the most legendary figures in all of DeFi, not crypto, right. But DeFi history, like, the most legendary marketer of new projects. He's started so many projects. He's a genius in so many ways, right? Like, and I have a lot of respect for him in so many ways, but I feel like this was almost an inevitable end state, which is, you know, after project eight, you know, you just call it quits and ride off into the sunset with a billion dollars and that's it, you know? I don't know. I mean, obviously, I have immense respect for Andre. I think Yearn is is you know great, and I think you know the whole Wi-Fi distribution and giving away was you know, incredible. And there's there's very few people who I think have you know his kind of character and, and building chops, frankly, just in terms of like shipping ability. But I, I will say, you know, maybe I'm not in the in the Andre fan club in that like you know the, the tough part in building products is not shipping something, right? It's not. I mean, that is that is tough alone. But it's like finding product market fit. And, and iterating and building something that's sticky. I would say very, very few things, basically nothing, frankly, outside of yearn 
has had that that, that Andre has, has produced. And, and it's like, and you gotta give Bantag all the credit. And, yes, and, and true. others and others for one hundred percent. Yes, you're right. like, like, urine is substantially better speaking than of our, Speaking of our Russian and Ukrainian projects, like urine is like all of these people in it's like fifty people in, in Russia and Ukraine for the yeah, most part. Urine is not Andre. Urine is a huge team of incredibly skilled people. It's people who took sure. it over from Andre, right? Andre yeah. sort of basically orphaned urine. Anyway, I'll, I'll just say like that's really where I think the true entrepreneurs are are made is in like grinding it out and, you know, sticking it out through many different iterations of the product until you find something that that works. And it's pretty easy to just launch a bunch of stuff and then bail when you don't get the you know, product market fit. Um, I think that is like uh, not, not as impressive. Yeah, look, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm an Andre fan or an Andre detractor. I, I feel for the guy. I can imagine how difficult it must be to be in that position where you're constantly getting pulled in so many different directions and you've got the Internet yelling at you no matter what you do. And he's been, he's been very public about his emotional experience being a builder in DeFi and, and I feel for the guy. But I also feel like this, this, this is not the most responsible way to go. I get it. And I can't fault a man for, you know, following his heart and his conviction, but it does suck to see someone leave that way. I may be more sympathetic than everyone else here, but I do think Phantom was kind of a very ill-fated experiment to actually follow through on the promises that were made there, uh, I think was way above what, exactly what you wanted the to. promises for Phantom. I, I'm not super clear so on to that. be what AVAX is. Here, here's my conspiracy theory. Okay. And this is the extremely bearish take on the situation. Phantom presented itself as an opportunity where there's basically an unused blockchain. And Andre saw this as an opportunity to, as a magnet, bring users and bring activity to Phantom when Phantom was unloved, unused, and extremely cheap, right? So it's and, like his ex die. Yeah. And he basically was able to create the entire Phantom ecosystem himself, essentially. So, like, Phantom should be extremely grateful to him for that. You know, I saw one incredible chart this week that during the mania of Andre quitting, transaction volume on Phantom exceeded that on Ethereum for a brief moment in time. That was if the you, Geist launch. Yeah. Like, if you asked me a year ago if phantom activity would exceed Ethereum activity ever, I would have laughed at you, right? But that was, that was made a reality, and he single-handedly created that. Now, selfishly, did he probably profit from that massively? Yes, absolutely, right? He basically probably owned a large portion of phantom before being the sole magnet to bring users and activity and transactions to it, right? And the sole champion, to be honest, he was like, Basically the loudest champion and developer that the entire chain had, like by two orders of magnitude, right? And that succeeded in Phantom today is like, what, top 20? I mean, it's crazy. Phantom. I don't think it's top 20 anymore. Right. Maybe not anymore. Maybe it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, now it's very, 39. It's very not top 20 anymore. Now it's 39. Yeah. But like, it's still a $4 billion blockchain that was a like $100 million blockchain not long ago. Look, like we we all can agree that the Andre is like, a you know, he's he's, a he's like a genius. He's a genius at activist investing. <laughs> Phantom was like probably one of the greatest active investing coups that we've seen in crypto. Period. Agreed. This shows the danger of having your reliance on a single person, especially when that person is not, you know, kind of tied to you the way that a founder might be, right? Because Andre sort of adopted Phantom, and if you adopt, you know, a blockchain, you can just as soon drop it. So, I mean, the one big difference between Phantom and AVAX is that 
you know, uh, AVAX has, you know, uh, Goon, who's the, you know, one of the co-founders of, of AVAX. Goon is not going to rage quit, right? Goon is not going anywhere. He's, he's, he's tied to the hip to that thing. Whereas Andre can leave whenever he wants. And when you have that, that enormous level of dependence on a single person, you know, you're like Germany and, and Russia. However, EOS is the counterexample where all the folks around That's EOS true. bailed and it was their <laughs> blockchain, right? That's true. That's true. I guess that's the, yeah, that's the importance of uh, not letting. Yeah, that was a reg pull, not a rug pull. Reg pull? Reg, R E G. Oh. <laughs> I think my joke was well better, done. but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you, guys tied. you guys tied for best joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Tom gets runner up for, uh, for best joke of that segment. So last up, um, I, wanted to, I wanted to also drop this because it's a little bit of a self-plug, but, you know, screw it. We're running the show. So um, this week we announced, uh, we, we had this blog post we've worked on for a very, very long time called the AMM test, a no bullshit look at L1 performance. And in this test, basically what we do is we benchmarked uh, all of the major uh, EVM-based layer ones alongside Solana. Try to see, uh, you know, they make large claims for themselves uh, about how much performance they can actually do. And the question is, okay, if you take a fair benchmark, the fair benchmark we came up with was being Uniswap style, uh, Uniswap V2 style trades. Um, what is the actual trades per second that you can get both at equilibrium and at max throughput on each of these chains? And the answer was, you know, maybe lower than what you'd expect. Uh, so I think Ethereum was like 10, Solana was about 270, Av Avalanche was about uh, 37, I think, or something at equilibrium, but then max is like 170. Binance Smart Chain, by far the largest of the EVMs at, uh, I think, like 190. So uh, that gives you a good sense of what kind of throughput blockchains can actually do today. And uh, we thought that this was really important because we saw, especially among entrepreneurs, so much misunderstanding about how much throughput these projects can actually do. And when, of course, when they release their own numbers, and this is true even of companies that we've invested in, uh, when they release their own numbers, their, their uh, benchmarks that they, that they use are very misleading because they're usually all transfers and they're almost always done on test nets, which are completely unrepresentative of what real smart contract engineers are going to be doing on these chains. And so we ended up publishing this and getting some love. And then the Solana crowd got really mad at us. And uh, I think uh, Anatoly I mean, to be fair, to, you did go after, you know, they were the, you know, you did kind of bit. go after them. <laughs> I mean, look, we, we kind of have to, right? They're the king. You got you to gotta go yeah, out yeah, and, yeah. and, you I, I, know. I, I, I think the interesting thing that this brought up in general is just this idea that, A, blockchains are pretty cool because you can actually go test this. So that's, that's first of all, that's like an improvement, right? Um, you can test this without you committing a ton of resources versus, like, if I want to measure some, like, SaaS startups claim on AWS, it's like a lot more nuanced to actually be able to do that. And in fact, there are companies that do that for you. And then it's, 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 uh, it's interesting. There's going to be a bureau of weights and measures for blockchains in like 20. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's going to be, a, it's going to be all the funds who, who are like invested in one blockchain. So I'm not doing it, but uh, like kind of like this, this, this seems like to be the, the way I would expect it to play out. But the interesting thing I thought from the Twitter commentary was this fact of like, people caring about message types of like how many messages do we consider consensus messages how many messages do we consider non-consensus messages and like if you consider consensus messages in your transactions and like in your tps rate that's kind of like juicing it a bit right because you're like hey those had to happen anyway and those aren't, those aren't necessarily messages that are uh, economic transactions so 
I think the interesting thing we're going to see is that the is that we're going to have non fungibility of accounting over time in all these metrics, and it's only going to increase because like no one's incentivized to like make a homogenous thing. Instead, you're going to have the cat and mouse game of like people like you guys going and doing. <laughs> I mean, that's the role of benchmarking, right? The whole point of a benchmark is to have a third party that is you know, doesn't have uh, that isn't any of the parties involved. That's objective. Go in and run a, a neutral test. Yeah, exactly. That that's reproducible. And so we have we put all the code on GitHub so people can go run the test themselves and post their numbers. Now the question of methodology is a fair one, right? Because when we when we when we benchmark Solana, you know, one of the things that makes Solana not ideal for this particular test is that this test really only measures a single threaded execution of a single Uniswap pool. And Solana has this um, there's this concept that actually, you know, nobody we talked to actually understood how Solana worked. So we had to go in and like go through a bunch of shit ourselves that like nobody we like none of the validators none of the people even on the solana team could explain it to us um and so we had to go you know go to the source material and go to the code ourselves and uh understand how solana has this notion of compute units which is kind of like gas but like not exactly like gas and there's a there's a limit of 12 million compute units per block per account and there's 48 million that you can total be in a block so which means that if you wanted to max out uniswap trades you could do four different uniswap pools uh, so provided that there's no, that they're completely segregated in state, you could do four Uniswap pools simultaneously within a single block. But of course, we did not include the consensus overhead. Because as you mentioned, Tarun, uh, every block on Solana, the consensus messages are part of the on-chain transactions, which fill up a block, which is weird because no other blockchain does that. So in order to get a real apples to apples about what can you actually do at the sort of user level, right? Like the, the, the real metrics you care about is like, what can a user do or what? what actual throughput can applications get on top of Solana to really get the apples to apples is, is complex. But uh, of course, none of these other blockchains are multi-threaded in that way. You can't uh, paralyze Uniswap trades on any other blockchain. So the, a, a, a truly fair benchmark would involve multiple things, not just, okay, how many trades can you get on a single Uniswap pool? Um, but of course, when Solana goes down, it's because there's a single pool or a single IDO or a single thing that everyone's sniping at. And this is the reason why it goes down is because it gets overloaded on a kind of single piece of state that's in high contention. Well, I think the other thing that's interesting about their compute model that probably also makes this even more annoying is that technically the user is supposed to su provide dependencies to right. some extent to state. And like, obviously, I'm sure like l literally zero wallets do that and they just try to like run everything serially. And so then you get this weird thing where like there was some extra parallelism, but like the user can't figure out how to send the right transactions to take advantage of it, um, which I think it is like way less common in other sort of chains. Because like basically EVM, even though it's annoying, assumes the user's an idiot, which is, you know, kind of the goal. <laughs> there. I mean, the, I mean, we, the EVM is trying to move to stateless clients as well, right? That's on the right, right, these right. two roadmap. Well, trust me, everything's on the two. They're, they're going to have Celestia no, now soon, right? <laughs> Dank sharding. I of mean, course. it's like, what isn't on the E2 roadmap is a better question. My, my takeaway, and this was the important one to me, was that all of the blockchains almost equally suck. Well, if you look at the graph, they don't all equally suck, but they all suck. They, I think that's relative all to claims. Relative to claims. Relative to claims, yeah. I'd say relative to claims, the spread between blockchains is much smaller than advertised. I think that's the big thing. And, and the other thing is, like, it's not to say that none of these blockchains will get there, right? Like, we're... I'm, I'm, I'm bullish that Solana will figure out a lot of these things. And the reality is a lot of these blockchains are just not very optimized. 
Like they haven't been around that long. And the workloads that they're going to be under are, you know, surprising to the, to the founders involved. And so there's a lot of work that can be done both at the smart contract layer, but also at the infrastructure layer to just optimize the hell out of these things. So I'm going to guess there's at least like a four or five X you can get just out of optimizing the current workloads. We, we didn't talk about the failure of the week, actually, speaking of this. Now, now you're running it, which is Evmos. The Evmos oh, launch we, we was like quite, quite an like, epic fail. In some I, ways. I feel like it's unfair to talk about like a, a blockchain stumbling in its first week of launch. I feel like it's, I, I, I agree, it's with, that. So I agree with that, but the, I think the, it's the, a non-event. this time was this, this was an interesting. Arun, what happened? We can save that. We right, can tell, we could give save us the TLDR. Give us, give no, us, give us the TLDR. Seconds. Give us the yeah. TLDR. I, I, I think the best view of the TLDR is a lot of people beforehand were talking about how like the code base was not super well thoroughly tested. Like if you well, went and looked before you, before you get there, Truman. So quick background. So Evmos is an EVM compatible Cosmos chain that was very hyped up. There was sort of there was no pre mine. Uh, there was going to be this like wrecked wrecked drop. Uh, there was like all, everybody in the Cosmos ecosystem was very excited about the launch of Evmos. And um, after the first, after the initial launch, uh, there was a protocol upgrade and the protocol upgrade failed and the chain halted and it's still in a halted state as of right now, is my understanding, while the validators try to figure out how to, how to get the system back up and running. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good summary. I think the main, the main thing that is, has been its issue is that DGENs are still trying to like, they're having this problem where like, the validators are trying to restart the chain and within two seconds, there's 5 million transactions trying. It's like kind of like the Solana restart problem, except at Genesis. Like that's, it's a lot harder to have that happen, like right at birth. And it's sort of a little bit weird. I mean, there is this kind of interesting thing. If you compare like validator communities and like say Solana to like, or AVAX to like Cosmos, there's a lot more DIY validators um, and a lot more sort of like, it's a just more diverse set of validators, if we're going to be honest. And like the cat herding to get this is get this kind of off the ground is a little bit crazy. And, and I feel like they really rushed the launch because they hyped up the drop and they didn't do a lot of testing. Like they their testnet was like live for like three weeks, two weeks. It was a very short test testing period because they like hyped up this drop where like anyone who'd ever been sandwich attacked on Ethereum would automatically get a ton of Evmos. You know, my real question is, is there going to be a wrecked squared drop? Like if I got wrecked on the wrecked <laughs> drop, do I get another? That's solid. That's solid. You should, you should launch a fork where that, that has a wrecked no, squared no, no. drop. I, I mean, I wish them all luck. I feel like, I feel like if they just didn't hype it so much, it would have like not, it would have been easier to like launch this thing. And now they're instead like, there's like a, this bot army ready to try to collect their, all the drops. Uh, and so gonna be it's gonna it'll be a, a little bit dicey i think for, for yeah the ironically their attempt to uh reward people for being victims to mev has now made them a massive victim to mev they should have tried the to do it on the test net like test the rec drop out first on the test net before going straight to prod with it i think that's the thing that because it's like a new it's a novel mechanism and you, it, it's worth kind of like making sure it works first how, how do you actually prove um, that you were sandwich attacked on Ethereum? Do they just have a snapshot? They just did a snapshot. All the addresses? They, they did a snapshot, okay. but the problem is it's like part of their consensus that you can claim it. So like it's a little, it's like a consensus rule that that's like built in. So it, oh, I see. It's like very tightly coupled in a way that is not great. So got it. But I, I think it'll it'll be interesting. Like the Cosmos ecosystem is interesting because it's like grown so much organically, 
without any bridges, like it's it's basically impossible to get from ETH to Cosmos without going through Luna. And you know, going going from ETH to Luna to Cosmos is like a <laughs> without nightmare. Without any right? bridges, you say. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's, it's a little strange that like Cosmos has been so successful without bridges. I thought the whole idea was supposed to be the interoperability network. Well, no, no, sorry. Without bridges to ETH to get people's capital over. I I, I mean more like, hey, you you know, when you grow these ecosystems, you need to be able to like let people onboard their capital from other places that they have it, right? No, no, no I'm being facetious. Yeah, we we were early investors in Cosmos, and you know I love the Cosmos vision. I think they've they've uh, done very well, but I'm still a little bit mystified at what's really going on in the ecosystem because it does feel like a lot of face planting that's been going on in the last couple months. But the, but the, it seems the momentum behind Cosmos is really really strong. Yeah, I and and I I, I do think the IBC user experience is a hundred million times better than the bridges. Like it, it is just coherent. I think the real problem is the Luna Luna actually has made its own little territory that like, you know, makes tries to make the UX difficult for some of the Cosmos wallets. Yeah, but ultimately when most of the value is outside of Cosmos, that that that, that is where IBC really struggles is uh, when you're outside of the kind of Cosmos walled garden. Anyway, we're over time, so we should we should we should call it here. Thank you everybody for tuning in again this week and we'll be back uh, in a, a fortnight from now. Thanks, everyone.